On the morning of November 15, 2004, police walked into the Porco residence and met a scene straight out of West Craven's imagination. At the entryway lay the lifeless body of 52-year-old court clerk Peter. He had severe injuries to his head and a newspaper near his right hand. Through the kitchen, there was blood everywhere. The dishwasher was open as if someone had been loading it. An unfinished glass of juice stood on the counter. Police said it looked like he had been going through the motions of his day as blood was smeared everywhere. They took to the upstairs of the house where they found Peter's wife, Joan, on their bed in a pool of her own blood. Because of the extent of her injuries and her initial stillness, authorities were ready to pronounce her dead. On closer inspection, they realized that she was, gratefully, alive. What police did next would be the unofficial hallmark of this case. Even in a state of blood loss, Joan Porco was able to confirm who attempted murderer was. It would be a thing of controversy for the next two years of Christopher Porco's trial and eventual conviction. But alas, children, this is a scam podcast, and this murder is merely a part of the sordid puzzle. These are the dark secrets of the dealings of the boardroom. They are often labeled as victimless and treated as subtexts in the world of crime. But we are the victims, and we deserve to know the truth. It's the only way that we can start fighting back. My name is Kushal Mike. Welcome to Scam Kings. were a family of four that lived in the hamlet of Delma, Albany, New York. Peter Porco, as I mentioned before, was a court clerk with the Albany Appellate State Division. Joan, his wife of 30 years at the time of the incident, was a children's speech pathologist. Their marriage produced two children. Jonathan, the elder, was an officer in the Navy, while Christopher was a student at the University of Rochester. Now, the murder, for obvious reasons, took the spotlight when the story broke, and it is still the fixation whenever this case is discussed. But I personally find the build-up to this story a lot more fascinating. It really gives you a nice breadcrumb tree leading up to what Christopher was convicted for, and that was murder. Christopher was born on July 9th, 1983, making him 38 as of Friday last. Um... Happy, happy birthday, I guess. Um, His relationship with his family leading up to the murders was not the best. Jonathan said that their relationship was always strained and they had never been very close. As for his relationship with his parents, it became even more strained leading up to the end because of his poor grades, his fraud, and his general behavior. It is said that Chris was very much preoccupied with maintaining a certain image of himself among his peers at university especially. One colleague from Rochester said that he always had the impression that Chris and his family were rich because of the things that he was always able to buy and because he made an effort to portray himself as such. What Chris portrayed to his peers and his reality were light years away from one another. By no means were the poor close close to destitution or even struggling, but it definitely wasn't the affluent lifestyle that Chris made it out to be. But I'm overrunning myself, so let's just back up a bit. The most traceable genesis of the family's problem with Chris could be traced back to November of 2002, which would have been around the same time that he started going to Rochester. 
The Poco's Delma home was burglarized, and several items were taken, inclusive of Joan's work laptop that was issued to her by the Shalmont School District to better perform her work as a speech therapist. The items would not be traced until nearly a year later when police recovered the device from a man who said that he allegedly bought the device from Christopher off the internet. In June of the following year, there was another burglary, this time at the Bethlehem Veterinary Clinic where Christopher worked part-time. The person broke through the window and took several items inclusive of a cell phone, a camera and computers. Those items were found in Christopher's possession just after the murder. The next month, July 2003, Peter's father called the police resident again, saying that someone had stolen a Dell laptop from the home this time. The same day, Chris posted and sold the Dell laptop using his eBay account. In July of 2004, just about three months before the crime, he used his eBay account to sell Apple PowerBooks. PowerBooks that he did not have. He made over $8,200 in sales and transferred it bit by bit to his personal bank account. When customers came asking about their products, he pretended to be another sibling, David, and told the defendants that Chris had died in a vehicular accident. About five days before the murder, eBay cancelled his account. Now, obviously, none of these instances are indicative of a capacity to murder in any sense. Teenagers do dumb stuff for dumb reasons. Clearly, Christopher was trying to get money to perpetuate the notion that he was more affluent than he actually was. Theft or burglary isn't necessarily the gateway to murder, but this is one instance where it kinda is. In trying to keep up with the Joneses, Christopher left his grades behind, and the University of Rochester ultimately required that he withdraw from the economics program that he was pursuing. His parents brought him back home and he quickly enrolled with the Hudson Valley Community College, wanting to better himself but lacking all the work ethic. He flunked out of there as well. His parents were aware of his failures in some capacity, but I'm not sure how deep their understanding went. In fact, I think they knew he was failing, but they didn't think that it was as bad as it actually was. I say this because he was able to forge a HVCC transcript so that he could get back into Rochester seamlessly in the year of 2004. And he did so successfully. He lied to his parents and told them that the university had made an error by asking him to drop out and that he had been reinstated. To boot, the university would be paying for the semester as an apology. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Of course he was lying, and while most of us would have gotten our crap together, Christopher intended to pick up exactly where he left off. He went back with all of the gusto and zero of the work ethic. One professor said that he received no written work from Christopher, and he refused to go to any of the office hours, even though he was invited. Approximately four weeks into the new semester, Christopher told his father that he had some expenses that he needed to take care of and that he needed some assistance. Peter, wanting to believe that his son was changing, gave him the documents that made Peter a co-signer to a $2,000 loan. Christopher Porco forged his father's signature and was able to take out a loan for $31,000, more than 15 times the amount that he indicated that he would need. Peter wouldn't get the memo about the loan until two months later, and needless to say, he was livid. He cancelled the loan and tried to get into contact with Christopher to discuss what he'd done. 
Still, rather than leave his son hanging, he took out a loan to pay for the semester itself because he did end up finding out that Chris had lied to him about the university paying for the semester. Only for Peter to later on find out that the vehicle that Christopher was driving, a Jeep, hadn't been part of a deal between himself and a customer as he had previously claimed, but that Christopher had forged his signature and taken out a loan in his name to purchase the vehicle. This is when things became more serious and Peter and Joan gave their son an ultimatum. If he didn't improve his grades, they would be pulling him out of Rochester. This time, for good. Now, Christopher loved being a part of campus life. The parties, the fraternities, the attention he got through his lives about his financial status. So, this was not what he wanted at all. In the short term, he got a friend to take a very important economics exam on his behalf so that he could stay afloat in school. He emailed his parents a week before the murder slash assault to let them know that he was doing better. It was a lie, of course. But even with this good news, Peter and June had Christopher removed as an authorized user from their credit card. It is on this note that the back and forth ends. Five days later, Peter Porco would be dead, and June Porco would give the most controversial piece of evidence that the US would hear. When police found June, she was lucid. Paramedics were attending to her on site and, according to them, she was responding to simple instructions regarding movement of body parts. Police took this as a sign that she was aware of what was happening and would be up for answering questions. One of the officers asked if she could hear him. She rocked her head in an up and down motion, signaling yes. He then asked her if a family member committed the crime. Another nod. He asked if the person who had committed the crime was her elder son, Jonathan. This time, she turned her head side to side. No. He then asked if it was her younger son, Christopher. Yes. Multiple persons were in the room at the time of the interaction, and they all confirmed that this is what happened. Unfortunately for prosecutors, by the time June had actually recovered, she said that she didn't remember the night of the incident at all, and firmly denied that she'd implicated Christopher in the murder. When police took him in, Christopher claimed that he heard about his father's murder and the attack on his mother from a reporter who had called his dorm, and thereafter he called the police to find out if it was true. Further, he claimed that he was asleep in the common room of the dormitory on the night of the incident. His roommate said that they never saw him there. In addition, a neighbor of the Porcos claimed that he saw Christopher's Jeep driving away from his parents' home in the early hours of the morning of November 15, 2004. It was hard to miss because Christopher's vehicle was a distinctive bright yellow. These testimonies would clash with one another in the trial, but I'm not going to get into all the details of this crime and the aftermath because it would be straying from what we need to focus on his scams. For a full synopsis on the aftermath of this crime, listen to the Murder in the Hudson Valley episode entitled Axe to the Face. It's quite comprehensive. Christopher's crimes stemmed from frustration with his debts, his need to keep a particular image of himself alive, and the gradual cessation of his income streams. eBay closed his account that he was using to sell his items and his parents had taken them off of their credit card. Personally, I believe the latter is what sent him over the edge. He probably felt betrayed by his parents and, in his rage, felt that he needed to do something drastic. It was bandied about that Christopher tried to kill his parents because he knew about their will, 
and perhaps again this is just my conclusion given everything that had happened in the years prior he was afraid that they would cut him out of their will and then he would definitely be left with nothing it was his last attempt to get funds in his hand to continue the high-end lifestyle that he was trying to maintain I don't think he necessarily attempted to kill his parents to cover up his trail of crimes because all of those arrests were pretty public knowledge. But it does stem from a deep anger of one that is entitled. And the financial connection to all of this is just what makes it a red crime. In the end, Christopher Porco was found guilty of the murder of Peter Porco and the attempted murder of Joan Porco. He is currently serving a life sentence at Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora, New York. He infamously sued Lifetime for releasing a movie in 2015 about the events of the crime, claiming that it was a misrepresentation of his life. It was reported in June of this year that he lost that case. To this day, he maintains his innocence. His mother still believes him. Information for this episode was sourced from... CBS Albany, Moodipedia, CampusTimes.org, Byron Nova, Course Hero, and Spectrum Local News. Hey there, Scam Fam. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Scam Kings. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you did, be sure to follow Scam Kings on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And more importantly, share this episode with a friend who you think would appreciate our style of podcasting. And if you didn't, that's okay. I have a couple of friends who may be more up your alley and want to introduce themselves to you for the next couple of seconds. There's also something for fellow creators in the end, so be sure to listen all the way down there. Thank you once again, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Bernadette, the host from Murderific True Crime Podcast, coming to you from the state of Maine, USA. We are a bi-weekly podcast and discuss stories from Maine, New England, and all over the world. Our stories focus on domestic abuse, mass murder, familicides, cults, serial killers, kidnappings, and lesser-known cases. Murderific is easy to find on all podcast apps or go to Murderific.com. Give Murderific a try. Remember, murder and horrific equals Murderific. Do you like someone that goes from topic to topic and tries to think of interesting things to say? Well, look no further than the Chaotic Neutral podcast, where I, your host, have on solo episodes and collabs like with podcasters and have fun while I do it. I like to talk about things from cats to drinking two quarts of apple juice from just cuz. And if you are interested in my podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at KOneutralPod and Instagram at ChaoticNeutralPod. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. Following my breakdown of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, I'll be digging deep into the raunchy Twilight fanfic turned erotic romance, Fifty Shades of Grey. Although I'm not sure romance is the best word to use. Join me every Monday and Friday for chapter by chapter analysis of the book that Salman Rushdie said made Twilight look like war and peace. You can listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links and contact information. I have a feeling that it's going to get awkward, but let's get through this together. Happy reading!